Chad Arnold, was a happily married 38-year-old man with two young children when in 2010, doctors broke the news. Chad would need a liver transplant if he was going to see his 39th birthday. Well, immediately, his younger brother, Ryan, jumped at the opportunity to volunteer. They ran the necessary tests, the blood work, and indeed, Ryan was a match. Ryan was willing to donate 60% of his liver, and really what was to be at this point with our medical advancements, a, a routine procedure. The family blog, and you know these days you can post these things online, records how the post-op events unfolded. Friday, July 30th, at 11.59 a.m., this is what they wrote. Ryan is doing well this morning, groggy from the medicine, but fairly comfortable. It's taken a while for it all to sink in. Chad is functioning with Ryan's liver. Almost doesn't seem real. Next post was Friday, July 30th at 11.45 p.m. Ryan was moved out of ICU and onto the transplant floor, so he's now just a few rooms down from Chad. Chad went on two walks today, up and down the hallway twice. Ryan has been pretty groggy today, which is normal. Saturday, the next day, July 31st at 3.44 p.m., Today is day three. We've been told from the beginning that this is perhaps the most difficult day, especially for the donor. Things are improving this afternoon, but last night Ryan did not sleep well and has been in quite a bit of pain. Sunday, August 1st, the next day, 10.18 a.m. Unfortunately, things took a turn for the worse last night. Ryan went code blue and was resuscitated. He's now in critical condition. We ask that you stand in faith and fight with us, death can't have him. Monday, August 2nd, at 11.04 p.m., this was the final post, Ryan went to be with Jesus this afternoon. Just four quick days. After a routine surgery to save his big brother's life, Ryan Arnold, the model of perfect health, before the surgery, died from complications, Ryan left behind a wife and three young children. As you can imagine, the family was completely devastated. You know, when Scripture presents human affliction, it does so with three drivers. Now, on a side note, it's, it's really an amazing thing that the Bible doesn't skirt or hide from the issue of pain. It doesn't skirt the issue of suffering. It addresses it. It provides three drivers for human suffering. One, the Bible says that, that some human suffering manifests as a result of God's judgment on all sin. Examples of this would be like the Garden of Eden. when We've all experienced suffering as a result of their decision. If you study the Bible, study the, the, the Old Testament, you'll see that nations are judged because of their wickedness. And people get caught in the crossfire. So in one aspect, suffering can be a result of God's judgment on all sin. We also see a second driver of human suffering, and that is a punishment for individual sin. I think we all kind of understand what that looks like. 
We've all probably been there, done that. A great biblical example would be King David, a man who made a series of very, very poor and tragic decisions that yielded very practical consequences in his family and in his life. But there's a third driver, and that is the fact that suffering, as the Bible lays it out, can, in some instances, manifest completely independent of our involvement. An easy example of this would be the anguish of Job, a man who suffered greatly and we're told at the very beginning of the book was totally righteous, had done nothing wrong. While the first two manifestations, God's judgment or punishment of sin, are to a degree simple cause and effect, which makes their understandable plight at least rational. I can grasp it on an intellectual level. If I do something dumb and I suffer as a result, I'm not blaming God. I'm blaming me. Like, I get it. I understand it. If heaven forbid there were to be a natural calamity of some kind, the clear judgment of God, and we get caught up in it, we at least can understand why it's happening. Well, we turn from God. We turn from following him. We turn from making him our number one priority. You see, these first two motivators, drivers of suffering, because it's cause and effect, we can, we can understand it. Like David had no one to blame but himself. Adam and Eve had no one to blame but themselves. And yet it's this third driver of human affliction that there is suffering that occurs independent of me, that I don't do anything. You know, it's, it's that that we struggle with. It's that that we grapple with mainly because that type of human suffering, that type of affliction, it appears random and in many instances unfair. I mean, why would God allow Ryan to die and Chad to live? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Such a dynamic existed in the lives of Paul and Silas while in Philippi. If you're unaware of the story, while in the ancient city of Troas, Paul was in a very tough spot. For the first time, he had no idea where God wanted him to go. He tried to go one direction, and the Spirit literally resisted him. We don't know how. He goes to Troas, and he's just waiting. He's in a circular pattern. He's just, God, I need direction. And it's in that moment something crazy happens. Paul, we're told, receives this vision of a man from Macedonia pleading with him to come and help him. Now, rocked by what he saw, Paul realizing he now has a direction from God, they catch a boat, they sail to Macedonia, and they land in the city of Philippi. Sadly, Luke records in Acts 16 that for the high crime of simply being faithful to God, their ministry that you can read about to a group of women down by the river, for the high crime of their love for people, for the oppressed, specifically a demon-possessed slave girl that they had ministered to and freed from her torment. We're told as a result of those two things, not inciting violence, not doing anything outlandish, not even engaged in controversy, ministering to a group of women down by the river and freeing a slave girl from being possessed, her torment, what happens? Well, we read that the multitude rose up together against them. They tore their clothes. 
which I, I never really got that, you know? Like, why tear your clothes? This sign, outward sign of indignation. <laughs> but, but then we're told Paul and Silas are beaten with rods. Then they're thrown into the prison and they have their feet fastened in the stocks. Now, what's, what's amazing about the story, and you can read about it all in Acts chapter 16, but Luke tells us that when most normal men would have sulked or at a minimum been discouraged by what had taken place, during the midnight hour, the scene that's set is, 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 is incredible. Instead of crying out, blaming God, saying, what did we do? Why is this happening? We're simply told in the midnight hour, a bloodied and bruised Paul and Silas are praying and singing hymns to God. That's abnormal. You might say it's supernatural. But then, while all of this is happening, and, and I hope you can picture the scene, it's a dark, damp prison cell, probably the bottom of a hole, side of a mountain, fastened in the stocks, it smells, they're bloodied, they're praising God. At that moment, there's a violent earthquake that so shook the prison that all of the doors opened. And the chains that are binding them come loose. Clearly something supernatural taking place. And, and while all of that would have been interesting in its own right, what happens next is what I want to spend our time talking about this morning. Because I think it's totally unexpected. If that had been you in that situation, like me, you would have probably seen it as God's deliverance, right? I mean, here I am. I've been serving the Lord. I've been ministering to people. I've been doing nothing but obeying God. I've been persecuted. I've been thrown into this prison. And you know what? I got to say, I've been doing pretty good. I kept a good attitude. I've been praying. I've been singing some songs. And the earthquake, the door opens. My chains fall off. Thank you, God. I'm out. Peace. You know, I mean, most normal people would have seen such an event as being God's deliverance, an escape from their plight, this affliction. But that's not what happens. You see, it's not how Paul viewed what was taking place. Because Paul ends up resisting this natural urge to see his suffering as being random, and instead trusted entrusted that everything he had experienced had been part of some plan while he couldn't see it. What do Paul and Silas do? Well, you and I would have, like a hot potato, been out of those, that cell, down the street, off. I'm gone. What do they do? Paul and Silas willingly choose to remain in their cell. Weird. Now, you might, as me, kind of think, on that as being a bit ludicrous. However, we should consider this morning why Paul and Silas made this choice to remain in their affliction rather than seek escape for the reasons we'll, we'll find, the reasons we'll discover, will illustrate why it is that this third difficult driver 
of human suffering, of affliction, the one that's independent of our involvement, is never, ever, ever random. Nor is it without purpose. I hope you know that this morning, right from the, right from the beginning. You might think it's random. You might think it's pointless. But this story is going to illustrate it's not. Let's dive into our story, kind of what happens next. Acts 16, beginning with verse 27. We read that the keeper of the prison, the earthquakes happened, doors have opened, chains have loosed. He awakes from sleep. He sees now that the doors are open. He supposes the prisoners have fled. So he draws his sword. He's about to kill himself. But Paul, he calls out with a loud voice, saying to the man, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light, and I don't, I don't think he's smoking. He runs in, and he falls down before Paul and Silas. We're told that then he brings them out, and he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So Paul and Silas reply, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And the jailer took them that same hour of the night and he washed their stripes. And immediately he and his family were baptized. This is all happening after midnight. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them and he rejoiced, having believed God with all of his household. My first observation this morning, I think the first point, is that one of the things that that you're struck with, Paul and Silas are in jail. They've done nothing to deserve it. They're just being faithful. They've been obedient. This is not a punishment. They find themselves afflicted. They did nothing to earn it. And yet, through this story, we see that it's clear that God used their affliction to place them in the very center of his will. Don't forget why they're in Philippi to start with. In Acts 16, verse 9, Paul receives a vision of what? Of a man from Macedonia. The text is clear. Now, what's interesting about that little detail is that according to Luke's record in Acts 16 of their experiences in Philippi up until this point, you'll notice the absence of something. Paul is in Philippi because he's seen this vision of a man of Macedonia. He comes to Philippi in Macedonia. He spends this time ministering. We have no record of him ministering to any men at all. Personally, I'm convinced that following this earthquake, Paul pokes his head out the jail cell. He's looking around. He's seeing things unfold, which includes this jailer. Frantic, right? According to Roman law, if you were given charge over prisoners and those prisoners escaped under your watch, whatever crimes that they were guilty of, you would have to pay the penalty for. No doubt the embarrassment, the shame that would bring, this jailer thinks it would be better to kill himself than to be executed. So he draws his sword, right? Paul's seeing it. And it's in that moment that I think something happens with Paul. I think something became clear. As he's looking down that corridor, whatever it happened to be, seeing that jailer, this man, 
drawing his sword, a light bulb went off. Something came into view. The man from Macedonia was the jailer. The very person Paul had been sent to help was now about to kill himself. Like, aside from the fact that this is the first man recorded in Luke's account of the ministering to in Philippi, from the flow of the narrative, a man from Macedonia, this being the first man, the two seem to align contextually. But it's, it's, it's fascinating, right? What happens? Paul cries out with a loud voice, do yourself no harm. And what's his reaction? He brings them out, he falls down, and he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Like, that's not a normal reaction to the situation. Like, it's clear that there's something deeper happening in this man's heart than just what met the eye. Like, don't miss the implications. For if the mission to Philippi had been to reach this jailer all along, the events of the last 12 hours, which at the time looked as though they were random and meaningless, pointless, Contrary to what God might be trying to do, well, those events take on a whole new level of purpose. Think about it. Paul and Silas have been arrested, falsely accused, thrown into jail. Why? Because God wanted to place them in closer proximity to this jailer. Then God allowed their suffering to afford them a powerful way to demonstrate to the jailer something supernatural, that God was at work through those men. Them singing these hymns and praying, no doubt the jailer caught word. He saw it. Something stirred within him. Which then becomes all the more significant as God would use the earthquake. To do what? To free Paul and Silas? No. God used the earthquake to create a moment of desperation in the life of the jailer that would be perfect for the the hearing of the gospel message. You see how all of this, which at the beginning seems to be random, now in retrospect fits together perfectly? They were beaten, accused, thrown in jail. Why? It's the jailer. They're praising God. Why? For the jailer. The earthquake was for the jailer so that the jailer would come and come to know Jesus. You know, it's a tragic byproduct of living in a culture so consumed by luxury and comfort. The byproduct is that more often than not, we really run from difficulty. We run from discomfort. Like when we're faced with the prospects of a tough situation, more often than not, we're going to seek the quickest exit or the path of least resistance. Now, if you're sitting there thinking, well, <laughs> not me. I'm a man. I follow Jesus. Okay. If you think that you're not immune from that, how about this? Next time a tough situation hits you, an affliction arises, just pause for a minute and observe. Maybe just write them down, your prayers. Like, see what your prayers really look like. Listen to them. You know what they're more often than not like? God, get me out of this. This is terrible. Why is this happening? 
We're looking for a way to get out. Why? Because we don't like discomfort. We don't like awkwardness. We don't like pain and suffering. And that's normal. Like, it's not wrong to pray in such a way. It's not. Take your cares to the Lord, no matter what they look like. Think about it. Even Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, facing a coming affliction of the, of the kind that, that we can't even really wrap our brains around. What did Jesus do in the garden? We're told he prayed three times. What? If it's your will, may this cup pass from me. What is he asking? If there's any other way. That's Jesus. And if it's okay for him to pray that way, it's all right for us to pray that way. However, when it's all said and done, are you willing, like Jesus, to resign yourself to the reality that there are instances when suffering is actually God's will for this season of your life? That's tough, man. Are you willing to pray like Jesus? May this cup pass for me three times, and yet, when it became clear that this was God's will, what does Jesus do? He prays, not my will, but your will be done. Imagine if Paul and Silas decided to escape as soon as the moment presented itself. What would have resulted? There's no doubt that the Philippian jailer they had been sent to minister to would have offed himself. But more than that, Paul and Silas, if they, had, if they had jumped at the chance to escape, they would have never afforded themselves the opportunity to see God's underlying purpose behind the affliction they had just endured. Because they stayed, Paul was able to see how it all fit together, how it had been God's will. Friend, instead of praying for escape, May I encourage you to instead pray for God to help you see his purpose behind whatever afflicts you. There's a second observation from our text, from the story. And it's that God used their affliction in order to accomplish his will. Not just his will in the Philippian jailer's life, but as we'll see, God's will in theirs. Don't miss it. Their suffering, which on the surface seemed random, it seemed unfair, in actuality, aside from just placing them in the center of God's will, we see that their suffering provided Paul and Silas the perfect opportunity and platform for what? For ministry. The situation yielded by suffering. And the godly witness of these two men while suffering created the perfect conditions for them to minister to this jailer and the moment of his suffering. I don't think that this is going to be a revolutionary statement. It's pretty obvious that the bridge between empathy and compassion requires a measure of personal experience, doesn't it? Isn't it true that the best comforters are those who have at some point gone through something where they needed to be comforted? I mean, no one and the muck solicits advice from the person perched in the ivory tower. Because this is such a practical truth, I hope you know that you can trust that your present affliction, even if it seems random, even if it appears to be unfair, 
your afflictions do possess a value for the future, and they do possess a redeeming purpose. You see, affliction, if nothing else, if nothing else, know this, affliction yields within a person a greater capacity to minister to the afflicted. And sometimes that's the only reason we're ever given, but it is a reason, and it's a powerful one. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3-4, through 4, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our tribulation. And here's why. That we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the same comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. God comforts us so that we can comfort others. Though I can concede that that notion, that that simple fact that affliction yields within a person a greater capacity to minister to afflicted, while it does give us a reason, it does provide us a purpose, it still doesn't really do much in the moment of our affliction to provide or to alleviate our circumstance. There have been times, and, and, and by, I, I would never suggest that if someone comes to you and they're going through hell, that your line of attack is like, well, at least understand that you're going to be able to help someone else with the same thing. You're like, cool. Because that doesn't do anything for me in the moment. I'm hurting. I'm bleeding. Great. I can help someone else. If I can get through it, right? I'm I'm wounded. Like, I understand that that point, it is very little to alleviate one's present situations. However, never underestimate the profound significance, the ability to find meaning, and the moment of pain will have on your ability to endure and persevere even through the most difficult of situations. You know, during the 19th and 20th centuries, as European societies grew more and more secular, key thinkers sought to define the driving force of human nature apart from the divine. Frederick Nietzsche believed that the will to power was the driving force behind human nature. He taught that striving to reach one's highest position or highest potential in life was the key to achievement. This was the key to to, to having satisfaction, especially when it came to our basic biological and psychological needs. Yet another thinker, a man by the name of Sigmund Freud, who disagreed with this, he believed that the will to pleasure was instead the driving force behind human nature. He taught that the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain was essential to satisfying humans' basic biological, psychological needs. But you had another guy, third thinker, a man by the name of Soren Kierkegaard, who took a different approach altogether, seeing the will to meaning as the driving force behind human nature. Kierkegaard taught the importance of finding meaning in life as being the essential component to achieving biological or psychological satisfaction. 
Now, what's interesting about these three viewpoints, the will to power, the will to pleasure, the will to meaning, these three theories end up being tested during World War II in the most brutal of ways when millions of Jews were forced into the barbaric conditions of the Nazi concentration camps. As one can imagine, when removed from the halls of academia, placed into the test tube of human suffering, this idea of the will to pleasure or even the will to power as being the primary driver, they became an inadequate motivator for human survival. In his book, Man's Search for Meaning, 1946, neurologist and psychiatrist Viktor Frankl, he weighed in on this debate by chronicling his experiences as a prisoner in Auschwitz for four years. He had been incarcerated there. And Frankl discovers that the only thing, he writes about it, that aids a human being to endure human suffering. The only thing that worked, he writes, was the quest to find meaning in every experience. Based upon Kierkegaard's will-to-meaning thesis, logotherapy, or what he kind of coined from his experience, it states, quote, meaning is the most powerful motivating force within humanity. In his book, he observes, quote, the way in which a man accepts his fate and all the suffering it entails, the way he takes up his cross, that gives him ample opportunity, under, even under the most difficult circumstances, to add a deeper meaning to his life. In contrast, Frankel notes that the greatest killer in the concentration camp, it wasn't the gas chamber, it wasn't the barbaric, horrific things that happened physically. He writes during his experiences in Auschwitz that the greatest killer was the singular acceptance that one's life no longer possessed any meaning. Frankel observes time and time again that when a person lost purpose in their suffering, they lost the will to live and would soon die. He wrote, the prisoner who had lost his faith in the future, his future was doomed. With the loss of belief in the future, he lost his spiritual hold. He let himself decline, became subject to mental and physical decay. Usually this happened quite suddenly in the form of a crisis, the symptoms of which were familiar to the experienced camp inmate. We all feared this moment. Not for ourselves, which would have been pointless, but for our friends. Usually it began when the prisoner refused one morning to get dressed, to wash, to go out into the grounds. No entries, no blows, no threats had any effect. He just lay there, hardly moving. If a crisis was brought about by an illness, he refused to be taken to the sick bay or to do anything to help himself. What killed him was that he simply gave up. Friend, though your suffering, your affliction, may seem random. The key is to realize, like Paul and Silas, that it isn't. It's not. Like the notion that suffering is meaningless 
is simply a lie from hell. For if one can at least get themselves to the point to believe that there is a sovereign God at work, one can then trust that there is a purpose behind all of the activities that God then allows, including whatever affliction you might be facing. Paul and Silas suffered. They suffered greatly. But because they chose to stay in this difficult circumstance and then hang around and minister to this Philippian jailer, they were able to see God work in an amazing way. Not just did the Philippian jailer give his life to Jesus. He brings Paul and Silas home. They share the good news of Jesus Christ and the man's entire family gets saved and then are baptized. I'm sure by the end of that dark night, Paul and Silas concluded that heavenly gains outweighed whatever personal costs they had to give. Suffering had a divine purpose. Once again, it's sad that when many of us jump at the first opportunity to get out from under our uncomfortable situations, we may, in doing so, be robbing ourselves of the very opportunity to see how God was planning to use these things, not just to place us in his will, but to accomplish his purposes through our lives. But we don't realize it. What I may enjoy when it's all said and done, an immediate reprieve from whatever affliction is causing me pain, the long-term effects of bailing, of getting out from under my suffering without ever being able to see its redeeming purpose. Do you know that that might have worse long-term effects? Consider, for Paul and Silas, this story, that their decision to serve while suffering, that it was that choice that enabled them healing from suffering? Look at the text again. Do you notice following his conversion, the jailer, does something amazing. We're told that he took Paul and Silas home, fed them, and washed their stripes. Like if they had gotten up the moment those jail cells opened and bolted, they bolt hungry and still bleeding. But because they chose to stay, they end up fed and find themselves cleansed. Like, understand, the choice to remain in the pit and minister to this Philippian jailer proves to be the very way in which God practically tended to their own wounds. I mentioned that, that their affliction, God performed a work. And we often focus on the jailer, and that's obvious, without understanding that God also performed a work in the lives of the sufferers. Now, according to a study co-authored by Paul Arnstein, who's a, a PhD at Massachusetts General Hospital, he found something really interesting. He performed this study, and he noted that when chronic pain sufferers spend their time, instead of sulking, but instead serving, particularly others with the same ailment, that they end up reporting less pain in doing so. On a scale of 0 to 10, after six months of volunteering, people's average pain ratings would end up dropping from a 6 to below a 4. Like that, That's actually a pretty significant drop. Here's, here's the point. 
if you've suffered or are presently in the midst of an affliction. You know the best thing you can do to deal with it is to lend a hand to someone who's also suffering. Whether it be a a, a similar pain or just a pain in and of itself. If you serve that person, that act practically aids in your healing process. Isn't it true that when, when, when you just had a tough run, that getting self-centered and self-focused, it doesn't help. It's almost like you just dig deeper the more self-inward you turn. And that the key is to, to start to look outward, to see other people, to serve, to volunteer. <laughs> that there's something about it where you feel better. Well, that's God at work. It's important that we keep in mind one sobering reality about this story. As is often the case when it comes to the nature of suffering, the events that unfolded that day could be used by God, as we see, or they could have been used by Satan. Satan could have used these things to continue to discourage Paul and Silas, or worse yet, destroy the life of this jailer. However, because these men held to that promise, that anchor of our soul, that God works all things for the good, even affliction, not only was everyone blessed, But what resulted? We're told that at the end, Paul and Silas have a full belly. Their their wounds have been tended to. This jailer's given his life to Jesus. His whole family has. They've been baptized. But we're just simply told that the jailer rejoiced. That word in the Greek means he rejoiced exceedingly. Jesus was glorified. I found that when a person comes to see that their present afflictions have a redeeming and lasting purpose. Man suffers who reach that point. There is no limitation to their capacity to worship God. Which leads to our final point, that God used their afflictions so that they might reflect Jesus more powerfully. Look at verse 35. When it was day, the magistrate sent the officers said, let those men go. The keeper of the prison repeated these words to Paul, saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Now, therefore, depart, go in peace. But Paul said to them, they've beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans. They've thrown us into prison, and now they want to put us out secretly. No, indeed. Paul's a little hot. Let them come themselves and get us out. And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. And they came and pleaded with them, and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city publicly. So they went out of the prison, entered the house of Lydia. That's where the church was meeting at the time. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and they departed. Now, did, did you catch that? Something that, that you kind of miss when you just read through it. Even after the events of that night, right? Paul and Silas, what happens? They leave the home of the jailer and go where? Back to jail. Like they go right back to the jail cell. If God was trying to get them out, he's up in heaven thinking, I mean, really? Like what do I have to do? Physically walk you out of the jail cell? You know, Paul's concern here was that while the magistrates had come to recognize that they were innocent, 
innocent of the charges that had been levied against them. Paul knew that releasing them secretly when they had been accused openly would have not set the public record straight. It's, it's why Paul's like, no, you need to come get us out. This needs to come into the open. Paul cared about his reputation in Philippi. Paul knew, right, that the only way to keep his name, therefore his reputation, from being tarnished, which I don't think Paul really cared about himself, but what Paul did care about is how these things might have affected this little church, their effectiveness, if their founder was a known criminal. See, Paul wanted a public acquittal, so the town knew that he had done nothing wrong. It's why he ends up letting it slip. He plays a trump card that while they had been beaten, thrown into prison, they were uncondemned Romans. Now that was a problem. Well, most of the rights of those who lived in the Roman Empire were trampled upon. A citizen, well, that was no trivial matter. Philippi was a colony of Rome. As Roman citizens, Paul and Silas were guaranteed certain rights. A trial before accusation. A trial before beating. A trial before imprisonment. You see, the way that they had been treated by these magistrates as Roman citizens would have had major, major repercussions if Paul had chosen to press the issue. Which leads me to a really interesting thought. Like, why hadn't Paul played the Roman citizen card earlier? Like, if, if that had been me. As soon as they tie me to the beating post, pull out the whips and the chain, like, as soon as this starts happening, I'm like, whoa, 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 time out. Roman citizen, it's my name tag. This ain't going down. Maybe after the beating when they're going to put me in the stocks, I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. It smells down here. It's a little damp. I don't really like, I'm a Roman citizen. Like, why does Paul wait till after all of this stuff to then say, oh, yeah, by the way, we're Roman citizens? You know, I'm convinced that knowing that most of the people he was seeking to reach weren't Roman citizens, therefore didn't have the same card in hand, that Paul willingly laid aside his Roman privilege, desiring to practically model how to deal with affliction. Like this opportunity to suffer. It had enabled Paul an opportunity to reflect to the world around him a powerful aspect of Jesus. That Jesus suffered. That Jesus also experienced affliction. <laughs> Jesus was not immune to pain. He wasn't given a pass from the full human experience. The truth is that Jesus, Jesus willingly laid aside His heavenly citizenship in order to suffer and to die. Not only to make a way for our salvation, but this is what's awesome. Jesus left the ivory tower he came into our muck to earn the right to be relied on when we suffer. Why is Jesus an incredible comforter? Because he's experienced incredible affliction. In his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, Timothy Keller wrote, Christianity teaches that contrary to fatalism, suffering is overwhelming. It's honest. Contrary to Buddhism, Suffering is real. 
Contrary to karma, suffering is unfair. But contrary to secularism, suffering is meaningful. The Bible says this. There is a purpose to it. And if faced rightly, it can drive us like a nail deep into the love of God and to more stability and spiritual power than you could ever imagine. Friend, if the life of Jesus teaches us anything, it's that while suffering may be an inescapable part of what it means to be human, God can use our suffering in incredible ways. He can use it to place us right in the center of his will, which as a believer is where we want to be. He can use our suffering to provide unimaginable opportunities to serve others, to minister, which in the process will aid our own healing. When it's all said and done, suffering, affliction, it provides us a way to reflect Jesus to an afflicted world. Never forget this. The glories of the empty tomb could never have existed if not for the afflictions of a bloodied cross. Ryan Arnold. He went under the knife to save the life of his brother. And his death proved to be a terrible blow to everyone who had been involved. But if this hadn't been difficult enough, this story doesn't end there. <laughs> Someone was going to have to break the news to Chad. The father drew the short straw. Chad was unaware of what had happened. And so he enters the room. As the story unfolds, he wakes Chad from sleeping, pulls up a chair, holds Chad's hand, and so gently said to his son, Chad, Ryan just died. And with tears running down his face, he said, but we still serve a good God. <laughs> Please understand, it wasn't as though those words made it all right for Chad. Like he knew his father was correct, and he did his best to maintain a godly perspective concerning the death of his brother. But you can only imagine that it was natural for him to be haunted by guilt, to struggle with purpose. Why did his brother have to die? You can imagine knowing that your life had been made possible because of your brother's death, that that's a weighty thing. Knowing that you are there to love your wife, to, 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 to work in the life of your kids, that that's only possible because your brother's wife and his kids, that that man died, that, that those kids don't have a father, that that woman no longer has a husband, that's, that is a burden. Well, Chad, he recounts the struggle of all of this, the struggle of this experience. And he writes that it was not until a visiting coworker told him that it had been his godly example that had caused him to reassess his own life. And it was in that moment that a light bulb went off for Chad, that Ryan's death, fused by God, could be redemptive. That there was a plan, that there was a purpose, that Ryan's death had meaning. He still struggled, but he came to terms with this. 
And he wrote in his journal on that day a Bible verse. He wrote 1 John 3.16. Simply, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Wow. If you're afflicted, please know this doesn't mean you're being punished by God. As a matter of fact, it may be that your suffering is God's way of placing you exactly in the center of his will. Nothing happens in your life, O oh saint, without first being filtered through God's love and his plan, which means suffering, as difficult as it might be, is not random. Your affliction is not without meaning, nor is it without purpose. God can and he will use these things to not only provide you a greater opportunity to serve others, not only an, an opportunity for you to find feel, f- healing, but he'll use these things to help you reflect a suffering Savior to a suffering world. Never forget, the brighter a light shines, the more heat the lamp has to endure. In conclusion, O heart bereaved and lonely, whose brightest dreams have fled, whose hopes like summer roses are withered, crushed, and dead, though link by link be broken and tears unseen may fall, look up amid thy sorrow to him who knows it all. O cling to thy Redeemer, thy Savior, brother, friend, Believe and trust his promise to keep you to the end. Oh, watch and wait with patience. And question all you will. His arms of love and mercy are round about thee still. Look up. The clouds are breaking. The storm will soon be o'er. And thou shalt reach the haven where thy sorrows are no more. Look up. Be not discouraged. Trust on whatever befall. Remember, oh, remember. Thy Savior knows it all. And so, Father, Lord, we ask that you would...